verses 1 through 12. Uh, that's 995 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not Get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, For those of you who don't know the story of Joni Erickson Tata, it was some 50-odd years ago, she had graduated high school and was diving in the shallow area of the Chesapeake Bay, and she broke her neck uh, performing one of these dives in the shallow waters, which left her paralyzed and in a wheelchair. She was desperate to be healed, and she scoured the the Scriptures looking for answers to her particular situation. She found Mark chapter 2 in the corresponding passage in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 5. This is what she said, "'That's all I read. I ignored the verses within the ellipses, verse 9, in which Jesus teaches that forgiving sin is a lot harder to do than healing someone. I didn't care about that teaching. Forget the sin part. I just wanted the healing part. As far as I was concerned, if I kept my nose clean and stayed out of trouble, Jesus would have no reason not to heal me. Chapter 2 of Mark's gospel brings us to a, a transition point in the text. We've seen that He has come to preach the good news. It has been evidenced by the miracles that he has performed. Again, his his primary role is is preaching. Secondary is healing. Now this second section, which takes us through to chapter 3, verse 6, we come across five uh, controversy narratives. 
five encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees. He's drawing crowds. There's now interest from the religious leaders, the religious community in Israel, who have obviously sent out these spies of some sort. They have obviously heard about the miracles in Capernaum, and perhaps they've heard his preaching and his teaching while he was in Jerusalem, but they have sent these theological police to, to, to suss him out. Mark tells us that Jesus has returned to Capernaum, and the people obviously have not forgotten who Jesus was, what he's done not not too long before. And they have once again packed out Peter's house, but they have not this time brought the sick and the demon-possessed, or at least the text doesn't say that, but instead they've come and they are listening to him. They're hearing what his message is, what he has to say. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. You see, he had won an audience with these people. He had healed, he had cast out demons, he had shown his authority, and the people were now listening to what he had to say. Then in the middle of all this, some men are trying to get in to have an audience with Jesus, and they have with them carrying their paralyzed friend, and they they can't get in through the door. It's too packed. It's too full. And so they go up to the roof, and they dig a hole in the roof, and they present their friend to Jesus for healing. Now, I think we are all very familiar with this story, and I am aware of how fitting it seems to be with what we've just done this morning. Um, But I think we need to take a second to appreciate the diligence of this paralyzed man's friends. You know, sometimes uh, kids will cry during a sermon, and I'm okay with that because that's sort of a covenant blessing. It's a reminder that there's multiple generations here, and it's a, it's a great joy to hear kids crying. I'm, I'm fine with that. Uh, if someone's phone rings, uh, I can be a little bit put off by that. That could be a little bit annoying, especially if it's an obnoxious ringtone. Uh, that can be very distracting. Uh, people falling asleep, uh, that to me becomes more of a game of, can I raise my voice loud enough? To awaken them, and I think I have to point out, I've never seen anyone asleep at 9.30, at 9 o'clock rather, but at 10.30 there's habitual sleeping. (laughs) Which, to be honest, let's think about that. You're up earlier, you'd think you would be asleep, but you're not. Who knows what's going on over there? I'll be over there next week, so I will refrain from mentioning that, I think. But just think about this. This is a a major distraction. Someone is turning Peter's house into a convertible. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and they could not get near him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw 
their faith. Whose faith did he see? True faith takes risks and will, will stop at nothing to reach the object of faith. We've seen this in the account of uh, last week of the account of the leper who comes to Jesus, who, who did not allow social conventions or, or, or the law, the ceremonial law to keep him from coming to the Savior. He, he recognized the author of the law and he knew that he had power over what the law, what the law could not do. He knew that this man could. And so he approaches Jesus in the spirit, honoring the spirit of the law, because he sought the one for whom the law was pointing to. These friends, they are willing to destroy a home if it meant that they could get their friend to be in front of Jesus. Surely thoughts of, what if he doesn't actually heal him, were crossing through their minds as they're digging through Simon Peter's roof. And then would this have all been done for nothing? You see, faith doesn't just change the way you think. Faith changes the way that you act. Joni Erickson Tata says that there was a point where she was putting her faith in the hands and the, the belief of faith healers. That these faith healers, that they were the ones who were going to make her walk again. This is why the object of our faith is so important. We can put our faith into the wrong things, into our finances, into our families, into our spouses, into our own abilities. But these will fail us over and over. These friends were putting their faith in Jesus Christ. They believed in the power that he declared himself to have. Because faith, if it is really faith, doesn't wilt in the face of obstacles. It doesn't give up in the face of difficulty. Faith doesn't run when things are hard. Faith doesn't quit. It doesn't give, up, uh, give way to doubt. It doesn't walk away in the face of of unexpected and difficult circumstances. What do you do when faced with obstacles and difficulties? What do you do when you face opposition? What do you do when life isn't easy? What do you think when you're not sure what God is doing? When you suffer in some way, what happens to your faith? I think of the story of Daryl Strawberry, whose, whose life was a, me a mess. Drugs, alcohol, uh, abuse. And he wanted to get cleaned up. And he makes a profession of faith. And then he, early on, he gets an injury and he goes right back to all of his old habits and he goes right back to his questions of does God really love me and it took years of coming back to the Lord and growing and being discipled and being in the word and learning more and more about the nature and the character of God putting more and more trust in him and you know what there will never be a day when that is perfect 
And so we echo the words of the man from Mark chapter 9 when he says, I believe, help my unbelief. So these men dig up, dig open the roof, and everyone is expecting that Jesus is probably going to heal this man. They've gone to such efforts to make this happen. He's done it before. He's done miracles before, especially here in Capernaum. He'll do it again. And Jesus looks at this man, and his words were like an atom bomb going off in this room. Son, your sins are forgiven. You have to think that his friends have gone to all of this effort, were up there saying, no, 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 we're not here for forgiveness. Look at his legs. He's paralyzed. We need you to heal. We're here for healing, not forgiveness, though we are sorry about the roof. Do you know what? Of course, Jesus knew exactly what they were there for. And his answer, as strange as it must have sounded in the moment, was more than anyone could have ever imagined. This man cannot walk, and because he cannot walk and is paralyzed, he cannot work, we would assume. Surely this man's greatest need is for physical healing. So why does Jesus tell him that his sins are forgiven? Because Jesus has just revealed something about himself that would send shockwaves through Israel. He has just put himself in equal standing to God. Throughout Scripture, no one could forgive sin outside of God. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not Elijah. Only God could forgive sin. And no matter how horizontal it appeared, no matter how person to person the sin appeared, it is always primarily vertical. Sin is always first against God. David, after sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and he says, before you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, what Jesus has done is he's just taken us from this little scenario happening in Peter's house, and he's yanked everybody up to about a 100,000-foot view. He's just jolted us to a, a, a bigger view of what is taking place in this little crowded room in this little town. This man is paralyzed because we live in a fallen world. We don't know if this paralysis is related to something he did or, or, or if he's like the man who was born blind. We do know that in Jewish culture in that day, there was this thought that, it, that your sin was, or your, uh, your, your infirmity or your handicap was this direct one-to-one -one relationship with a sin in your life. We see that with the questions about the man born blind. Was it because of him or was it because of his parents that he was born like this? And in Luke chapter 13, when the people ask about, well, what about the Tower of Siloam that has fallen? Surely these people were worse sinners, which is why they died, why they perished. The issue is that we live in a broken world because of the sin of Adam. 
We live in a broken world with broken people in broken situations and broken conditions. There's suffering and there's injustice. And Jesus is showing that he has authority to reverse these conditions. And he is making a point that our greatest need is not for physical healing, as wonderful as it is. And of course, we pray, as we've just done this morning, I don't want you to think that these are in conflict with each other. But our greatest need is, for forgive from, is to receive forgiveness from God. What is this paralyzed man's greater need? Would he be better off being paralyzed for his life, but have eternity? Or would he be better off having immediate healing and eternal judgment? The separation between God and man at the fall is our greatest problem. And just like this man who has complete inability to do anything, so is all of humanity incapable of anything apart from the saving work of God. There is no amount of roofs that we can pry open to earn heaven. It has to be the work of God. But we keep thinking that our greatest need is is somehow something outside of us. It's our social condition. It's our physical condition. It's our financial condition. Jesus says, no, it is your spiritual condition that is your greatest need. There seems to be another reason why Jesus chose this moment to drop this bombshell. And it has to do with who was present in this crowded house. Verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who could forgive sins but God alone? Notice they say this in their hearts. And not out loud because they know that the crowd would be against them. What does this say about their hearts? Clearly their hearts are against God. Even in their efforts to defend and protect God, these scribes are are educated men. After the Babylonian captivity, they were the leaders of the Jewish nation. Ezra was a scribe. Their job was to take and to copy the scriptures. They were also professional interpreters of the Mosaic law, and they determined how the details of the law applied to everyday life. They were the custodians of the so-called oral law, which was beginning to replace the written law. And the oral law was just a bunch of Things that were said, it's legalism, it's man-made laws, it's additional laws. And so they are vehemently against Jesus, showing who the real paralyzed people in this room really were. And they were waiting for him to slip up so that they could call him out on his theological error. And here it was, he's just put himself on equal footing with God. But again, they're on his turf, and so they think these things in their hearts. And Jesus has what they are thinking revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, and he says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? 
Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Just think about that question for a moment. Take a moment and think about that. Which of those two things is easier? For one thing, to say your sins are forgiven in some ways is easier because there's no evidence required there in the moment. No one will know whether indeed this man's sins are forgiven or not. But to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, that demands evidence. So he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now he's just placed on himself this title of the Son of Man, which is the term that Jesus uses most frequently of himself, but why? It is, is it to emphasize his humanity as he does in so many other places in Scripture? Well, the phrase comes from Daniel chapter 7 in which this figure is a divine human ruler with authority and dominion over the earth. And to give them evidence that he has the authority to forgive sin he gives the command to stand up and walk out. This was the evidence that he had the authority to heal and forgive. And it points to his true identity as Messiah, as God himself in the person of the Son. And the man rises up and he walks among them so that they were all amazed and glorified God and said, We never saw anything like this. Have they not seen miracles? We know he's already performed miracles in Capernaum. Yes, they saw miracles, but they had not seen the physical miracle and the greater miracle of the forgiveness of sins from a man. Isaiah 35 has this depiction It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I imagine even Simon Peter, with his roof destroyed and lots of insurance claims to filed, was probably rejoicing with everyone in the room. But I want to come back to this question that Jesus asks the scribes. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven... Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Because, you see, on the surface, as we said, it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven because it, re- it doesn't require any evidence. The take up your bed and walk means everyone's in the room expecting something to happen. But here's the reality that only one person in the room understood. It was infinitely easier... For Jesus 
to tell this man to stand and walk. He created the world. He created man all by the power of his word. But you see, the harder thing to say to this man was, your sins are forgiven. Because saying those words ensures that Jesus is going to a cross and he will face separation from his eternal father and he will face rejection and he will face the violence of men and he will face the scorn of his friends and bear the weight of the sin of every person past, present, and future who would put their saving hope in Christ. To say to this man, your sins are forgiven will cost Jesus his life. But he says it anyway, because that is what he has come to do. We started talking about Joni Erickson Tada. Here's what she concluded at the end. I learned that the core of Christ's plan is to rescue us from sin. Our physical aches and pains and broken relationships aren't his ultimate focus. He cares deeply about these things, but they are symptoms of the chief problem in this fallen world. God's goal is not to make us comfortable. He wants to teach us to hate our transgressions as he grows our love for him. She says, I reread Mark 2 and Luke 5, where Jesus healed the paralyzed man lowered by his friends through the roof. This time I studied the verses I had ignored. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. The scribes uh, began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? How can he forgive sins? But God, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take up your bed and go home. Jesus could heal. Again, this is Tata speaking. Jesus could heal the paralyzed man because and only because he had authority as the Son of God to forgive sin. It was the point he wanted to make with the scribes. For him, healing withered legs would take no more effort than setting the stars and the moon in motion. For Jesus, it was merely finger work. But when it comes to forgiving sin, it was no easy effort for our Savior. Our redemption required blood and a strong arm of salvation. I collapsed in tears when I began to glimpse how heinous my sin was. Physical healing paled in comparison to the unthinkable abuse my transgressions heaped on my Lord. So for the last 50 years in my wheelchair, I've been daily dying to self and rising with Jesus. Daily dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus. My goal is to mortify my fleshly desires so, I may, so that I might find myself in Christ God has been answering my prayer, exposing dark things in my heart, things from which I need to be healed. Does God miraculously heal? Sure, He does. But in this broken world, it is still the exception and not the rule. 
a no answer to my request for a miraculous physical healing has meant purged sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, and a hunger for his word. Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. It's all to the praise of deeper healing in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that there is no contradiction in what we have just done in praying for Paul a moment ago and in what we've just looked at in your word. For, Father, I know that these very things have marked Paul's life in that through these difficulties he's grown in faith, he has new eyes to see the world in which exists around him, he's grown in his love for your word, he, he seeks to serve more, and yet, as, we've, as Bruce has already said, we still come to you in asking for prayer and asking for healing, that these things would be done to the praise of your glory. And yet, Lord, we can't help but ignore in this passage the weight of our sin, the thing that stands between us and you. And so we come in repentance and confession, seeking new hearts. Oh, that you would take these hearts of stone and break them and turn them into hearts of flesh. Because, Lord, we know the ultimate reality is that we long for eternity. We long for the city that is not built with human hands, but the one whose foundation you have laid. And so, Father, we present our requests for healing. But we also deep down know the truth. And we have hope in that. And that gives us confidence. And so, Father, we commit all this to your hands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.